Our gospel reading for today comes toward the end of Matthew's Olivet Discourse and right before the Passion Narrative. Jesus speaks of the need for his disciples to watch, to be prepared for that day when they will give an account before God. And he uses three parables to illustrate his point. The parable of the faithful and wicked servants, the parable of the wise and foolish bridesmaids, which we heard last week, and our lesson for today, the parable of the talents. Now, it's easy to read parables like these and get the wrong idea. The idea that the entrance exam for God's kingdom consists in good works. That if we live a good enough life, if we help out at church, serve the community, read our Bibles, say our prayers, then God will accept us. But this is at odds with the basic gospel message that salvation is a free gift of God, which we receive by trusting in God's promise. As St. Paul says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not because of works. And it's simply not the question that these three parables are meant to address. They are not concerned with how one is saved, but with what it means for those who have been saved to watch, to ready themselves for Jesus' return. What today's parable teaches is that the way we show our readiness is by acknowledging that we are stewards of God's bounty, that this calling comes with great responsibility, and that it also comes with unsurpassable joy. So first we acknowledge that we are stewards of God's bounty. Notice how the parable begins. A man went on a journey and entrusted his property to his servants, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Sometimes when translators come across an ancient unit of measure, they substitute an equivalent contemporary unit, but here they leave the original. In this case, it's probably because we get our English word talent from this parable. So it highlights both senses of the word, talents in the sense of money and talents also as gifts or abilities. But for the original audience, since they didn't speak English, a talent was just an amount of money determined by weight measurement. And since we don't trade in talents very much anymore, it's easy to miss the significance of these opening lines. For the amount that the man gave to his servants was a fortune. One talent was about what a laborer would get for half a lifetime's work. So Jesus' audience would have been shocked by, by these outrageously large sums. Now stop and think about this image of the Christian life for a moment. God has uniquely gifted his people and provided abundant opportunities to use those gifts to build up the body of Christ. The first thing to take away from this passage is that our calling is one of radical stewardship. Everything we have, everything we are, even life itself is on loan from God. As James says, every good gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Is this really how we think about our lives, that we are stewards of God's, using our life and labor for his purposes? For some people, this realization dramatically affected the way they lived their lives. I'm reminded of the practice of John Wesley, who said that whenever he took out his checkbook, he would ask himself before he wrote the check, Would God want me to spend his money on this? (laughs) 
kind of hard to justify some of our purchases if you think in those terms. The Christian life is one of radical stewardship. This can be a little uncomfortable to face at first, but I found that it's also quite liberating. There's no need to get sucked into our culture's incessant consumerism, as if our worth in God's eyes was equivalent to our net worth or the sum of our possessions. There's no need to feel compelled to keep up with the Joneses, as if our worth was determined relative to our neighbors. There's no need to feel bad about doing work that lacks prestige in our society's eyes, as if our worth was based on a worldly standard of success. Rather, all that we are and all that we have of true value is safe in Christ, and we are freed to be extravagant in our stewardship of God's gifts of time, talent, and treasure for his purposes. So we are stewards of God's bounty, and that means, second, that our calling comes with great responsibility. For stewardship means not only that all we have is from God, but also that we are responsible to God for how we use it. And there are basically only two options. We can be good and faithful stewards, or we can be wicked and lazy stewards. We don't get too many details about the faithful servants except that they went off at once to invest the talents. There's an urgency and excitement in their purpose, and our lives should likewise be filled with a sense of excitement to be of use to our Lord Jesus. Every time an opportunity arises, and there are countless every day, remember the value of those talents. Our hearts should leap in our chests even as our feet spring to action. We get a few more details about how the third servant uses his talent. We read that he dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. That seems an odd response. Why would he have done something like that? Well, in the ancient world, burying money in the ground was a way to keep it safe from theft. Clearly, the servant was afraid of losing the talent given to him. And he seems to have thought, if my master punishes someone who doesn't make a profit, what will he do if someone loses his money? So his fear leads him to do what was safe, but not wise. His master gives him a talent according to his ability to increase its value, not to keep it safe by doing nothing. And it's not as if God is short on funds. In other words, God, who knows what we are capable of, expects us to use our gifts and opportunities to further his kingdom, to venture out boldly for God. Too often, though, we play it safe, hiding our gifts and ignoring God-given opportunities, congratulating ourselves on not doing anything really bad, and yet, if we're honest, not capitalizing on the many opportunities to do good that have been given to us. When you get right down to it, the third servant was, as Jesus would later say, quite literally, of no use to the kingdom. But kingdom work is what life is all about. It's work that has literally eternal significance. Remember Paul's encouraging words, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So here's the second takeaway. Have we been faithful stewards of God's rich blessings? Have we taken the tremendous responsibility seriously and centered our lives around kingdom living? Or have we hidden our talents? Have we made this world our kingdom 
and fancied ourselves sovereigns. This parable teaches that our calling as stewards comes with great responsibility. But third, it also comes with unsurpassable joy. When the master returns, he calls his servants in order to settle accounts with them. Remember, this is not suggesting that Jesus will one day take a look at our lives and see if we've done good enough to enter the kingdom. Christians have already heard God's final judgment over us in advance. We have been acquitted, cleared of all charges through faith in Christ. But we will give an account of how we have lived our lives in response to the salvation we have in Christ. And it is a sobering thought that our lives could evidence what James calls a dead faith. But what are we to make of how the third servant characterizes his master? He says, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. To say that the master reaps where he did not sow is accusing him of theft. He's stealing from someone else's field. And the phrase, you have what is yours, might sound innocent enough, but it was a way of saying, it's no longer my responsibility. In other words, he insults his master, calling him a greedy thief, and refuses to accept the responsibility he has been given. Well, is the servant's picture of God accurate? It's certainly quite at, at odds with the description we get at the beginning of the parable where his astounding generosity is on clear display. It's true that the master does not contradict the servant, but I think the idea is not to affirm that he is greedy and immoral, but to say that even if the servant were right, he should have at least put his money to work in a safe investment rather than do nothing at all. His excuse is a rationalization, blaming the harsh character of the master for his own lack of effort. In any case, the servant's insults and excuses are of no avail. His defensive comments show that he knows he has not fulfilled his responsibility. God has literally handed him salvation, and he hands it right back. You have what is yours. He would rather lead a meaningless life without responsibility than accept responsibility and share in God's joy. But he is not our model. Our model is the first servant who presents his five-talent profit to his master, and likewise the second servant with his doubled investment, only to be greeted with one of the most beautiful lines in the whole Bible. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Is not this truly our deepest longing? To hear God speak honest words of affirmation to us? To share in God's joy over us, his prized inheritance? And don't miss that final reminder of God's generous character in the ironic phrase, faithful over a little. The first servant was entrusted with five talents. That's the lifetime wages of two and a half laborers certainly a staggering sum. And if that's a little in God's eyes, just imagine what true riches are. Ours is indeed a glorious calling to share in our master's joy. 
and we can experience a foretaste of that joy even now as the kingdom begins to bud in our, the offering of our lives to the Lord. So how are we to show our readiness in this brief interval of life before we stand before our maker? Jesus would have us acknowledge that we are stewards of God's bounty and that this calling comes both with great responsibility and also unspeakable joy. The dark shadow cast by this parable is that the wicked servant's response, though foolish, is possible. It is possible to reject God's gift of salvation. But even in the darkness of rejection, God reaches out in grace. Soon after he told this parable, Jesus would himself enter into the outer darkness on the cross. He experienced the abandonment of God so that those who have turned their backs on God might one day experience the joy of his well done. Life is short, but bursting with significance if only we have eyes to see it. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom.